Well, good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is going to be from Mark, uh, verses 1 through 23. If you want to turn there with me. Again, that's Mark, excuse me, Mark 13, 1 through 23. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are but, these are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first or excuse me, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. <clears throat> For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father to his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, for my, or hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs, wonders, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Glad you're here for this passage today. We're just going to start right here today. We are looking at probably the most 
difficult passage today, the entire New Testament, along with its parallels in, in Matthew 24 and I think Luke 18, I think it is. We are looking at one of the most uh, difficult passages there is. Nothing like this topic of eschatology, which means the, the end times, the end of days, nothing like this sparks a curious interest on one hand from the Christian popular culture, movies and book series that have come and gone and countless predictions for when Christ will return. 1988 came and went. 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 88 was a book. Maybe you read it. Uh, or 2012 came and went. The Mayan calendar did not pay off, did it? We are still here. Um, to, to the general cultural obsession that, uh, you know, we're, that it's going to end in a zombie apocalypse. I mean, that's, it's just out there. We like to talk and think about end times and speculate. It's pretty easy to get caught up in calculating and speculating. Well, in Mark 13, Jesus addresses... The end times. In a passage many call the, the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives. Remember, Jesus has just left the temple uh, from chapter 12. He's just left the temple after all those dialogues. Remember the debates of the last few weeks we've been talking about. And this is really his only uh, long recorded teaching in Mark and his farewell prophecy in, in all the Gospels, what we're looking at today. This difficult passage is really hard to interpret. And we need to be reminded that many faithful, as we begin, biblical scholars have disagreed over the details. And so as I came to this passage this week, and we come to it this morning, we need to come to it humbly, as it is hard. And really, I would even say, hold our views on end times Loosely. There's definitely nothing to divide over. And some of what I say, even because of that, by necessity today, is going to be uh, my opinion even on what I think Jesus is saying. Uh, I have the responsibility to come down on a given text as the shepherd and lead teacher in this church, and so I must. But at the same time, given the nature of texts like this, I'm going to say it today even, I think this is what it's saying. But as we come to this passage today, we're going to come at it as Jesus does. He's the one that says it. He's the one that speaks the words here. He's not predicting dates. He's not identifying for us the Antichrist. Our goal this week is to see what we're going to do is see that Jesus here in this passage, he uses more of a pastoral heart, a pastoral heart for his people as he teaches them, as he cares about them through the end times. That's what he's doing rather than to seek them, help, help them calculate the times. Jesus himself doesn't even do that. He's more concerned with our faithful obedience in this passage and our increased evangelism in suffering than really our own apocalyptic curiosities. That's how Jesus himself goes about it. He's more concerned to help us persevere in obedience in the end times and, and vigilant faith and calculating dates. So let's look at the context then of Jesus, his final really prophetic utterance, the only long teaching we get in Mark. It must be important then in this passage which forms the bridge to Jesus' crucifixion. You know, maybe it was Peter. We don't quite know. Peter who wanted to, to counter all the, negatives, all the negative attention Jesus had been bringing to the temple as he, uh, in these dialogues, as he flipped the tables, as he uh, proclaimed that he was there as the final sacrifice. 
all this negative attention that had been coming to the temple. Maybe it was Peter who came outside as they're walking away and said, Wow, Jesus, look at the brilliant stones. Look at this temple. You know, it, it, it's great, isn't it? It's beautiful. The structure and the stones, and some of them were bigger than uh, gigantic, like uh, those big trash containers they drop off at places and fill up at uh, construction sites. Those stones, some of them were bigger than those. It was amazing. It's a breathtaking building. And Jesus responds, look at chapter 13, 1 and 2, Naya's response, but how they ask. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Look at this great building. It's going to be gone, he says. He shocks them. He shocks them with these words. This temple will be destroyed, he says. And really destroyed. He catches language. He says, not one stone that will not be totally overturned. He gives like a double negative there even to make it. It's really, really, really destroyed. Shocking to them. That was the center of their religious life. And community life. All the good things that had happened in that, those courtyards would have been shocking to them. Which happened... You know the history of uh, Israel, history of God's people. In 70 A.D., the Romans, led by Titus, led an army into Jerusalem, a battle that had been going on for a few years even before then. And so on one level, this prophecy about this destruction of the temple was fulfilled in the lifetime of some of those even standing there with Jesus when he said it. Well, so as we come to a passage like this, some people think everything here refers to that time in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And there's others that think that all of this even points to the future. One to the disciples' mind, they hear the temple's destroyed, they are just going to assume when the temple's destroyed, that's the end of times. That's the end. What could happen after that? It's over. That's probably where their minds instantly went. But do you remember we talked uh, at our Christmas series in Isaiah about prophecy? And how we need to think about it. I want to bring it back up again. Uh, in, in that Christmas series, Isaiah, we, we brought up this picture that we looked at. And we talked about how biblical prophecy kind of functions like this picture you see here. You take a look at it. In this picture, you see a few different horizons, don't you? In, in the foreground, we see the kind of the lush green hills and the, the little pond there. Uh, kind of with really stunning detail and clarity, you see. In the front there. But then in the back, we see a, a different horizon. A little further out, we know it's there. You can see it. it. It's not quite as clear, but it's out there. Well, then even in this picture, you've got a third kind of and fourth horizon back there of rocks that you can kind of see. You know it's out there, but it's even less clear than the foreground. Well, the fulfillment of prophecy works much like this in the Bible. It's kind of how it works. Many times it's fulfilled in stages over time, on different horizons, you might say, over different periods of history. So what I think we see this morning, what I think we see this morning, is Jesus predicting this AD 70 temple destruction and his prophecy on one horizon, one time of history being fulfilled in that near event, AD 70. And yet I think it's also pointing us to a, a little bit further out horizon. 
And the temple destruction in AD 70 point as like a kind of a coming attraction. You, know, you go to the movies, you see a coming attraction. Here's what's coming. You watch it, like, oh, whoa, that looks amazing. Well, here it's like, whoa, that's terrifying. The temple. It's like a coming attraction of what is coming out on the further horizon when he returns at his second coming. And so he prepares his hearers and he prepares us for, I think, on some level, what he says today, sometimes that are ahead of us with lots and lots of imperatives. I think in this chapter, there's like, in this whole section, like 19 imperatives, like a you must or, or do this. That's what an imperative is. He prepares his people because he cares. He's their shepherd. He knows what's coming and he knows that, of course, there'd be anxiety and fear as soon as they hear the temple will be destroyed. So this morning, we're going to look at three imperatives. We're going to look at three of them. Three imperatives for the end times. So if you've got your outline, your smartphone, your Bible, your tablet, open to Mark 13 as we begin to unpack our first imperative of this passage as we think in these prophetic terms. Here it is. Do not be deceived, Jesus says, by false teachers or distracted even by the signs. How do you handle conflict? How do you handle uncomfortable situations? How do you handle it when somebody challenges your faith or your view on something or your belief? Or how do you handle the turmoil that's taking place uh, in, in the news, in the world these days? These are the kind of questions that should be swirling around our mind and in the foreground of our own minds when we begin to talk about trouble that's coming. Trouble that's coming. How do you deal with it now? How do you deal with it now? When Jesus says, trouble will even intensify in the future. Those kind of questions, keep them in the foreground of your mind. As Jesus begins to talk about very very troubling details of history. Really troubling. Disciples ask Jesus in verse 4, well, if the temple's going to be destroyed, Jesus, when will this happen is the one question they ask. And what should we look for? They ask him two questions. When should it happen and what should we look for? Look at verse 4 there. Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. But you know what's interesting? As Jesus comes to those two questions, he only really answers the, the what, not the when. He really only answers. They asked him, the first question was, well, when? Of course, it's on their mind. If you knew something catastrophic was going to happen, wouldn't you want it? Well, maybe you wouldn't, but I, maybe you want to know the when. When? I, I want to prepare. I want to be ready. Jesus really doesn't answer that. He only answers the what to look for. Maybe what signs we will see. He doesn't even really attempt to answer the when for them. He kind of leaves it. Disciples are like every generation. Every generation that has since followed them. Look how terrible things are. This is it. This is the end. Jesus must be coming back now in 1988. He's got to be. There's 88 reasons. He's got to be. Every generation. Look how terrible things are. Jesus is coming now. The time is over. Pack it all in. And that's the very thing Jesus is telling us to avoid. It's the very thing he's telling us to avoid. A pack it in mentality. Like just pack it all in. It's so horrible. It's all lost. It's finished. This is the end. Jesus must be coming. Pack it all in. 
It's the very thing he wants to discourage. A false sense that the end times are imminent. That's what he wants. To not be deceived. He takes this pastoral heart. I love Jesus that his past is such a pastoral heart at every moment we've seen him in the Gospel of Mark for a concern for his people, their, their alertness, their vigilance, their just being ready. In times of, of, of crisis, he basically tells them. In times of turmoil, when everybody is freaking out, thinking, this is the end. In times of persecution, there will always be leaders in the church who rise up to lead astray. That's what Jesus is saying be watchful for. Not like, when exactly is this going to happen, but be ready. Be watchful, because when these times come, there will always be leaders that rise up to lead people astray. And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Be on guard, in other words, is what he's saying. Whether it's false predictions about the end times, uh, or claims even, as he says, that maybe there's even claims to some level of deity, or demanding, demanding a, a really oversized influence, like, I know the answers. I know what's happening. Especially as it relates to this end times. And an understanding, you know, over the trial that the church finds itself in. Well, let me explain it to you. If there's ever an oversized, uh, big, big leader that comes along, he says, be, be, be mindful. Be watchful as it relates to end times. If somebody comes along and says, let me give you 88 reasons. There's a real danger, that means, of being led astray then for us. There's a real danger. There, there's got to be. If Jesus addresses it, it must be a real danger. We have to test everything that comes along against God's Word, especially as it relates to the future. We were in Bend uh, in October, uh, and we were looking for this uh, a certain waterfall out there, a hike. I don't even remember which one it was, but we plugged the name into our our phone, our GPS. Uh, I'll just admit it, I'm terrible with directions. I just am. It's, just, it's how God wired me. I don't really think spatially very well. Uh, and so I plug it in. Of course, I'm going I'm to follow it. So I follow it, and we go, and all of a sudden, we're, we get to the waterfall. There was no waterfall. <laughs> we were, uh, it took us down some dirt roads, even off main trails. And we're in, all of a sudden, I stop, and I look at Rob, and I, I don't think we're in the right place. So look at me. I don't think we are either. Look around. Where's the waterfall? We get out of the car. We're kind of like, we just, it wasn't there. It had taken us the wrong place. We just kind of blindly followed it. We were 45 minutes actually from the destination. It took us another 45 minutes. But we almost didn't go. I, if, if I had my way, we probably wouldn't have. I, I was like ready to pack it in. No trail, no direction. We, you know, we've, we've kind of hit a roadblock. This is the end. We kind of stop moving. There's some similarities to false end times predictions and teachers that lead us astray. If you think the end is already here, there's a temptation to jump off the trail, to, to sit back. To, to pack it all in, to wait complacently, to, to give up. Hey, this is the end. It's over. I'm just, I'm checking out of this thing. And that's exactly what Jesus doesn't want us to do. It's too late to make a difference anyway. This is the end. 
That's the danger, and it pulls us away from our mission. When we get over, over caught up in, uh, in the end times and, and, and get caught in the wrong areas of, of when rather than looking for the signs or leaders that come, we, we get pulled off our mission into complacency. That's the danger, the distraction. Kind of like the wars he mentions and, and rumors of wars he, he talks about that must take place, he says, or when nation rises against nation, Jesus says. I remember being a child when, or a teenager, I guess, when uh, the first desert storm started, uh, one of the first, I guess, you know, wars I really, really remember uh, that I was aware of consciously as a, a 15-year-old, uh, I remember thinking, this is the end. <laughs> as a 15-year-old, I remember thinking, this is the end. A war in the Middle East? And I was like, I'm so, so certain that this is the end. This has got to be the end. And our temptation to, when those things happen, to anxiety and to worry and to misinterpret it, that's what Jesus is focusing on. I mean, don't forget, remember, when World War I came, when they called it the Great War, the war to end all wars. You know it. You know the phrase. The war to end all wars. There's a temptation to say, this is the one. This is it. And Jesus says, they will come. Wars will happen. Nations will rise against nation. Don't be so sure it's the end. Or how about even temptations or battles in our own families? This is how we can handle them there even. You get in an argument and your mind goes, well, this is the way it's always going to be. It's never going to change. This is the end. This is just how it's always going to be. It's never going to change. We, we're, we're, we're prone to that, aren't we? We see a trial come. We misinterpret it and we think, it's never going to be different. This is the end of time. Jesus reminds us, wars will happen. Political upheaval, upheaval will happen. That doesn't mean we, we don't care when war happens or we don't attempt to pursue peace and all of it. We do. But then in the midst of, of turmoil in your life, in our nation, in our world, we stay on task. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he's saying to his disciples. We stay on task as disciples who want to make more disciples, who want to make more disciples, who want to make more disciples, knowing that these things will always happen around us. Always. We stay on task producing a gospel culture at Bethany Church, here, in our families, in our homes, in our lives, remembering that these things happen. God is sovereign even over the nations. He says these things must happen. He knows. He's God. And they do happen, don't they? They do. A New York Times article defined war this way. You'll see it coming up on the screen here. They defined war as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. And that whoever this reporter was went and kind of did a, a study. They said, well, how much war and peacetime have we had? And they over-recorded history then. They came up with the, uh, the summary that of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace with that definition of war for 268 of them. Think about that. Or just 8% of recorded history. Think about that. 8% of recorded history has been peaceful according to that definition of, of war. We fret, don't we? I get anxiety. We think, man, this is off the rails. This is the end. 
It's off the rails. There's no way God is going to accomplish it, what he wants. We, get, we grow complacent. That's the danger Jesus is pulling us away from. What did Jesus say? This, these things will happen, but the end is not yet, he said. He knows. He's sovereign. And if he's sovereign over kings, nations, wars, and rulers, can he not also work then the turmoil of your life too? In the little battles, in the little skirmishes, can he not also work through those too? I would say absolutely. If he's sovereign over nations, rising against nation, he too will work in our day-to-day lives, in your day-to-day life. It's not over until God says it's over. Until it's really over. So don't be deceived. Don't be distracted by, by global level conflict. Be alert and obedient. And, and as a church, let us stay on course for whatever comes our way in our own nation or in the world. Full of, of conviction of these things. Keep living the faith till you see Jesus in the clouds. Till then. Till then. Jesus knows there will be these things. But he also knows that there will be, this is global. He also knows that on a personal level too in the end times, even now, you'll have tribulation and trial too. We will have it as well. It's our second imperative. Here it is. If you associate with Jesus, this is what he's saying, be ready for persecution, but stand in spirit-empowered perseverance. He knows it's not going to happen on a global level. That's what he just did. He said nations and wars and rumors of wars and leaders will rise up against leaders. But the end is not yet. He also says on a personal level, if you associate with him, be ready. Be ready. I don't know if you remember, but in December, in one of our Sundays, I mentioned this church in China called Early Rain Covenant Church, and Pastor Wang Yi is his name. It was back in December that he and his wife and, and four other elders even were arrested. That was in December in China for what they called inciting subversion of the state. That was his charge. Inciting subversion of the state. Talk about kind of nebulous. What does that mean? We're going to be in anything inciting subversion of the state. Now, our lives have gone on. Our, we've gone on since Christmas. I haven't given Pastor Yi much thought. Our lives have gone on. We're all thinking of spring's coming. Christmas is a distant, December's a you know, distant memory now. We, we, we've forgotten Pastor Yi and his church. But he's still in jail. He's still in jail for his faith. And even though we've forgotten, he, he definitely has not. His kids that are not in jail, his young kids, I think 12 and 11, his church, they don't even know where he's in jail. He just vanished. And his, and his wife, their mother, and some of their elders, they just vanished. They don't know where they're at. Look at verse 9. Be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake 
to bear witness before them. Jesus says to us, you will face persecution if you associate with me. You will face persecution if you associate with me. You'll be delivered over to councils and and leaders and, and beaten and maybe even by your own family, he goes on to say, delivered up to death by your own family. Verse 12 says, for my sake, he said though, for my sake, to be my witness, he says. In fact, verse 13 says, you will be hated by all. Hear that. For all. For my name's sake. Do you hear that though? The potential is there to be hated by all for Jesus. That potential is a reality for Pastor Yi. That potential is a reality in nations around the world to be hated by all for following Jesus. Sign me up. (laughs) Sign me up. I mean, think about that. Nobody wants to sign up for that. And right in the middle of this section, Jesus says, but don't be anxious. Come on, Jesus. How is that possible? My own family could betray me up to death? I might stand before others and be beaten and hated for following you? How's that possible? June Chang is her name. She's a reporter from World Magazine. And from a February issue, they haven't forgotten about this story. World Magazine's a Christian news organization. They said in an issue in, uh, in February, she talked about her interviews she's done over the years with Pastor Yi. Here's what she said about him. In my reporting on Early Rain Covenant Church, I- I've interviewed Wang in person three times. Once at an eye clinic after a church member was beaten by police for passing out pro-life flyers. Once in his church office. Once at Starbucks by his home. I think, I mean, even pause there for a minute. Think of the reality of that right there. A corporate giant Starbucks, and he can walk outside and get arrested for his faith. Think about that. Talk about a corporate moral confusion. We'll export a Starbucks, but you won't find anything about this story in our media. What struck me most, she says, about Wang was that each word he spoke, even with his erudite turns of phrases, resounded with conviction. He was a man who had counted the cost of his actions, of the way he led his church, and of the potential pain his family would face. And he decided Jesus was worth it. He counted the cost, and Jesus was worth it. Think about that. The potential pain he knew of family and church, and Jesus was worth it. And because of that, she said, uh, he lived like a man with full conviction. He oozes conviction, was the way this reporter described him. That's a man on guard. That's a man who's read Mark 13. Not led astray, persevering to the end, as Jesus says. Could you be that? I thought about that this week. Could I be Pastor Yi? Could you be if that, if our Starbucks down 99 there, you walked out and knew walking out of it, you could be arrested or punched in the face for following Jesus? Could you be that? Jesus is telling us to be ready in this section to prepare and not to be surprised by others if they hate you for his name. 
Quick side note, here's where this, this comes from. If you don't know about World Magazine, they are, they're following this story. Nobody else really is. Christian News Magazine, just wanted to throw it up there as a side note today. Their magazine called World and their daily podcast, World and Everything in It. Great place to get Christian, really b- fair, good news, uh, World Magazine. That's where June Chang quoted from. Well, a couple things for us here then on this idea of associating with Jesus. Here's the first one. If you associate with Jesus and he says you'll, you'll face this persecution, he's just assuming that your faith is public. That's the first thing. He's just absolutely assuming your faith is public. I mean, why else would he say these things? He just assumes that the disciples there in that day and that you and I are just active participants in this missionary endeavor. He's assuming that our faith is public. You know, our, our American faith, and we know this, it has become so privatized, so privatized. I don't know if you realize it, but the last couple of years, if you've been listening to different leaders, politicians speak, the beautiful concept of the American religious freedom has been redefined. Have you heard it? Religious freedom has become freedom of worship. What does that mean? As long as it stays in your church, or your synagogue, or your mosque even, as long as it stays there and doesn't come out of your mouth or or enter into the public square or your life, hey, believe in Jesus all you want. Keep it out of every sphere. As if that were possible. And if you hear that and think, well, maybe that is possible, you should probably check your definition of disciple and faith. If you have a, a view that thinks, well, I can keep it cloistered off into one little place in my life. That does not sound like the type of faithful and obedience Jesus is calling us to. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go into every sphere and situation of your life and blow it up uh, uh, right away by saying, the Christian's here. You don't have to do that. That's not what he's saying. But we need to use wisdom. Use wisdom in those situations. Jesus is assuming you are taking the gospel, talking about Jesus for his sake out in your life. He's just assuming that. You can't think anything else when you hear him talking to his disciples this way until the gospel is proclaimed to the nation. Meaning it's part of the plan. It's part of the plan to spread the gospel through persecution like Pastor Yi is doing. Why would he need to encourage his disciples even in this way if it was just me and Jesus, lived out in the privacy of my home, lived out in the privacy of our church? Why would he even need to talk to his disciples this way if that was what discipleship looked like? He wouldn't. He's absolutely just assuming it's out there in their life. It's out there in their life. Is it worth it? For the sake of the name of Jesus. He says, for the sake of the name of Jesus. Here's what that means. If that happens to us, as it's happening to Pastor Yi, it means the lashes, it means the insults, it means whatever Pastor Yi received, it means they were meant actually for Jesus. That's what that means, for the sake of his name. Which means when you do suffer for him, you suffer with him. And you commune with him in a unique, deep way when you absorb the hurts that were meant for him. That's what's happening to Pastor Yi right now for the sake of the name. Those beatings on him are meant for Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Is he worth it enough to live it out public, publicly? Is he worth it for us, Bethany Church? Is, are we willing to stand firm in the Gospel and, and love our community with the call to repentance and faith when they may, they may hate us for it? And trust Jesus as we call them. That's the first. Here's the second. You don't have to be anxious, though. I, I, I hear Jesus' words like, how can he say that to them with a straight face when he's telling the temple's going to be gone. You're probably going to be killed. You may be beaten. They'll hate you for my name. Don't be anxious. How does he say that? Jesus knows. He says, the Holy Spirit is with you. That's the key. Jesus has left. He's coming back. We're going to talk about it in a moment, moment even a bit more. But he says, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need in tribulation. He says it in verse 11 in the context of speaking out. He'll give you the words. He'll be with you as you prepare the words or as you stand there, maybe even spontaneously. He'll give you the words. We have the Spirit of God still dwelling in you even if the Son is in heaven waiting to return. He gave you someone, God Himself, who guarantees our perseverance. Look at verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Being a disciple is not for the faint of heart, but we have an absolutely, overwhelmingly powerful spirit that can encourage us, that can reduce anxiety. Jesus says the one who endures to the end, you will be saved. It's guaranteed. You'll be delivered. He's telling them, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So stand when persecution comes. Stand when trial comes, knowing that He's there with you. You're, it's for His sake. It's for His name. With Spirit-empowered faith, because Jesus implies our third imperative, things will get worse before they get better. Here it is, our third one. Intense tribulation requires intense trust. We come to the most cryptic phrase in all of the New Testament. The most cryptic phrase in all of the New Testament. Verse 14. But when you see, and here it is, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus speaks this really weird, strange phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. Thanks, Jesus. Can you make it a little clearer for us? <laughs> the abomination that causes desolation. His reference is to the book of Daniel, where it's mentioned a few times there, and the prophetic words spoken there, and that phrase is mentioned. It would be an act so horrific that it would cause the Jews to abandon the temple and flee, as Jesus describes, from rooftops and without taking much with them. They would just flee. Here's one reference from Daniel. For from him shall appear and profane, uh, from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. There's our phrase. Jesus goes on to describe after he tells them this phrase and references Daniel, this intense time a heightened intensification of tribulation. 
by connecting to this phrase, the abomination of desolation, with intense suffering that has not been, he said, since the creation of the world. He connects them back to this Old Testament prophecy. Let me try to make this as simple as I can for us. So here's Daniel's initial prophecy. Some ways that people, or maybe it has been partially fulfilled on these horizons that people have speculated over the years. Here was the first one. Uh, Daniel prophesied before this, but in 168 B.C., there was a Syrian ruler, Antiochus, I may say it, Epiphanes. I won't be naming my next son that. Antiochus Epiphanes. He erects a statue of Zeus in the temple, in God's temple. And over the altar, he sacrifices a pig there, which they would not have done, and desecrates their altar. That was the first time that those in uh, history thought that this abomination of desolation had happened. They too did the same thing. This is the end. It's here. This has got to be it. And on one level, maybe partially fulfilled, and this, this big revolt comes out of that time called the Jewish Maccabean Revolt. Here's the second one. AD 40, so this is now after Jesus' prophecy, uh, a man, an emperor from Rome, Caligula, who was probably insane, uh, if you've ever read much about him in history, he almost fulfilled this prophecy. He tried to install an image of himself as God in their temple. Well, here's the third one. Jesus is probably also has in mind here the destruction of the temple in AD 70. When General Titus enters the temple in AD 70 and they just lower it to the ground. You know, ancient hist historians, you can read from the 4th century AD, they spoke of this AD 70 prophecy from the 4th century. Now, they actually believed that it was fulfilled. They said, this has been fulfilled. And they actually recorded that people did flee the city as Jesus describes, like just jumping off of rooftops and just going, leaving everything behind. You can read from the 4th century. You can go further back even to this Jewish historian named Josephus, who was alive actually during AD 70, at that exact time in his writings, and, his, and they refer to Jesus' words. So a Jewish man, not a Christian, refers to Jesus' words and says that AD 70 was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. So there's all kinds of speculation with this. Maybe it was totally fulfilled. Maybe it was partially fulfilled and will be again. And it's my opinion that there probably is some future to this as well. There probably is some future destruction, final fulfillment of this prophecy as well. Not everybody believes that. Not every Christian believes that. But I do think it's pointing to something in the future and Jesus is saying here, using the temple destruction to point to some ultimate destruction to come. I do think that's the case. And G add Jesus' words to Paul in 2 Thessalonians about that man of lawlessness. Here they are. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. I think he's referring probably to this. And the man of lawlessness, which Jesus says he will stand in a place he shouldn't be, is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And you get an ultimate pic or picture, though, of some ultimate personal, as First John even calls in Revelation, some antichrist of some kind. Some future, maybe even personal, real person, 
who will fulfill ultimately Daniel and Jesus's and Paul's prophecy. I told you, it's confusing, isn't it? It's a lot. People have speculated forever. In some time of great tribulation, with false teaching uh, and false Christ, Jesus says, and false signs and wonders even, he'll usher in Jesus' return and he'll be destroyed. What that looks like, who that looks like, where that actual spot will be, is essentially some speculation. But I do think it's pointing to a personal future event. That these things that the disciples asked in verse 4 will happen in the those days of verse 19. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's like, great. So some, some future things out there. Some future tribulation. Well, what do we do? Well, we find hope, as Jesus wanted his disciples to do. We find hope. We trust God at his word in the midst of coming tribulation that I believe the church will actually go through to or any tribulation in your life. Any tribulation in your life. Look at verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. God's in control. Whatever comes in your life, in our nation, in the world. Let me say that again. God is in control regardless of what comes into your life, our nation, our world. Even with what will come at the end of days. In fact, he's using it. And he will, he says in verse 20, deliver the elect. He will deliver his chosen people. What does that mean? Divine grace is going to limit what you and I go through. He will deliver us. So be on guard, he says. Don't be misled. Don't follow false Christs or false signs. Stay focused on the real, true, risen Lord, and you will be delivered regardless of what comes. That's what he's saying. That's what he's encouraging with, uh, us with today. So wait for him. But that doesn't mean we wait, just like waiting it out, passively and sit and wait mentality. Remember our question, what's your salvation for? It's not just to sit and wait. I know that. If it's anything, it's not that. Just to sit and wait. When Jesus speaks of the future, it's meant to, live how, to change how you and I live in the now. That's what he's doing. He speaks of the future so that you and I will change the way we live in the here and now today. We cannot be complacent. Jesus' final words, I've told you all things beforehand. Which means we can't sit on this. We can't sit on this. He's given it to us to know certain things, at least, about what is coming. But we must live every day as if it could be our last and or those that we know who don't trust Christ, it could be their last. So while we wait, we don't attempt to figure out necessarily or become too obsessed with dates and times. We keep listening to the voice of Jesus when other voices get strong. We're not surprised by wars and rumors of wars, catastrophes, 
We're not shocked and surprised when suffering comes. This is what Jesus is wanting. We keep on the mission and we keep going until our Savior appears in the clouds and we say with Paul, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the church does. And guess what? Next week, we get to talk a lot about that glorious coming. So come back. Let's pray. Lord, so much here for us, but I pray that we take this away today. When you speak about the end of times, it's so that we will change how we live in the present. That we'll be those that can live boldly. When everything seems to be out of control, we'll say, no, God is sovereign. When trials come into our life or into the world, we'll say, he's still present by his spirit. And when we begin to think, maybe he's never coming back, we will say, no, he is coming again on the clouds and we wait. Let us leave with those today. Let us be emboldened in that to live our faith out and, and really think, wrestle with that question as we leave today. Are you worth it, Jesus, to suffer for the sake of your name? May we all answer that with a resounding yes and amen. In Christ's name, amen.